We looked back to see the old conduct. We indulged in selfish passions and selfish desires according to our flesh, which ultimately led to the destiny we are children of wrath. I don't think the scene could get any darker or the pit could be any deeper. These are desperate times in desperate places. Uh, Dr. Kent Hughes calls it a walk through Death Valley. 30 seconds, three verses to remember how bad it was without Christ. And it was truly bad. There's nobody to blame but ourselves. It's our trespasses and our sins that put us there. We can't point the finger elsewhere. It's our fault, our responsibility. Our wage for our own sin is our death. The longer you look at verses 1 through 3, 30 seconds even, you realize how depraved you were. That is, you had the inability to save yourself. You needed a Savior outside of yourself. You were in so desperate a condition, so far a place, you were sprinting in opposition to God, and you needed someone outside of yourself to deliver you. You understand with Paul in Romans 7.24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Three verses 30 seconds of utter despair, hearts below our stomach. It's an awful feeling. Shame, guilt, remembering who we once were. But then, like a rush of joy, like a gasp for breath, We come to two words in verse 4 that changes everything. But God. But God. These words hit us like a beam of light through the darkness, like the life preserver thrown to the one drowning, like a spike on the heart monitor after 30 seconds of flatline. But God. Being rich In mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen? Beautiful words after such desperate Conditions. This is divine intervention. The emergency responder took action. We did not reach up. God reached down to the depth of our despair, and he quickened us to life. God did the impossible. God raised the dead. And Christian, this new life you have, even the first breath you took in salvation, is nothing of your doing. It has nothing to do with you. It was completely and solely the power and grace of God that made you alive. 
but God made us alive. Are you thankful? Even in 2020? What a reason to be thankful. What a passage, a text for us to look at on this Thanksgiving service. This is good news for us today. Christian, this is your God. This is what he did for you. He made you alive, and this changes everything. This changes everything. We're going to look closer at these two verses, verse 4 and verses 5, but let me pray before we move further. Dear Heavenly Father, we cannot understand even the depth the immeasurable riches of your mercy, your grace, your love that was poured out upon us, such wretched beings, in that you saw fit to send your Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place and to be raised from the dead so that, God, the penalty of sin can be paid And the new life in Jesus Christ can be given to us. And we, God, can be made alive. Lord, give us a greater understanding of your word. I pray that these truths would not just hit us and uh, convict us or just leave us feeling a type of way. I pray that we would respond. That they would move us to live our lives differently because we are alive. We're no longer dead. We give you all the glory for the work you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. God made us alive. Three questions that we could ask of the text, and we get three answers. God made us alive. Why? God made us alive. When? God made us alive. How? God, God answers those three questions in these two verses. First, why? Why did God make us alive? First, abundant mercy. Abundant mercy. But God, look at the text, being rich in mercy. We've heard this phrase before in Ephesians. Riches. Remember Ephesians 1.7. According to the riches of his grace. Same kind of phrase, different uh, virtue or attribute there, grace. And then later in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, we see the immeasurable riches of his grace. So we know God is abundantly, immeasurably rich in both mercy and grace. The picture we have here is of the storehouses in heaven overflowing with mercy supply. Unlike the toilet paper supply at Costco right now. Or Target, or Walmart, wherever you shop for toilet paper. The supply doesn't meet the demand. They've run out. Because some people, like maybe some of you, are buying in abundance, overflowing, hoarding. And because of people like you, my family, we've been using newspaper for weeks. (laughs) Kidding. God's mercy is not so. The demand never uh, outweighs the, the supply, or said another way, the supply never falls short of the demand. 
God's mercy is in abundance. Uh, Lamentations 3.23 says, His mercies never come to an end. When you think, why God? Why did you forgive my sins? Why did you save me from such a wretched condition? Why didn't you leave me to my vices to continue down the path toward wrath? I deserved it. He's rich in mercy. What is mercy? Write this down. Uh, Differentiating mercy and grace here, nuanced here. Uh, Mercy is undeserved relief. Grace is undeserved favor. They work hand in hand in salvation. They're almost used interchangeably, but there's nuance in the term. I I like to illustrate it this way. The, The cop pulls you over because you were speeding. And you were going at least 10, maybe more than 10 miles per hour over the speed limit. So the officer pulls you over. But to your surprise, the officer says, hey, you know what? I'm going to let you off with a warning. I'm not going to give you this ticket. What was that? That was mercy. You deserve the punishment. You deserve the penalty. But the officer relieved that from you. He withheld that from you, even though you deserved it. That's mercy. Now the officer, that same officer, notices that your taillight's busted. Well, you should get a ticket for that too. But the officer says, you know what? Instead of giving you a ticket, I'm going to give you $300 cash, and I want you to go get your taillight fixed. That is grace. You didn't deserve the favor. You didn't deserve the cash. You deserved the ticket. But he gave you the cash as undeserved favor, grace. Listen, Christian, in salvation, God relieves you of the suffering and penalty that you deserve. That is his mercy. And he favors the sinner with righteousness, eternal life, a future inheritance, a position of authority with the Son. We're going to look at that next week. That is his grace. God is rich in both currencies, (laughs) rich in supply. But let's consider mercy in this context. It fits. Because look at how bad you were in verses 1 through 3. You were dead, unable, separate from eternal life, walking aimlessly in a dead world, ruling, or sorry, ruled by a tyrant, Satan. You're selfishly indulging in your passions, living according to your own way, which is in opposition to God, children of wrath. It was so bad. Our sin was so bad. It's like we were kids running around, pouring lighter fluid on ourselves, begging God to just light the match and end it. We gave him no reason to help us and every reason to end us, but God had pity on us. And the desire to relieve our pain, to relieve the punishment that we deserved. Hebrews 8.12 says, God says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Rich in mercy. He showed us mercy instead of giving us the wrath that we Deserved. Last week we talked about the reservoir of God's wrath building and increasing. Every sin that we commit 
There's more wrath, more water poured into the reservoir. And we talked about without Christ, there's nothing standing between you and the dam that holds the water back. When God lifts his hand from the floodgates, you will be consumed. There's no human force that can withstand it but God. Being rich in mercy, with a move of compassion, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is, that his son took the wrath that we deserved in our place. See, the cross of Jesus Christ makes its stake between you and the floodwaters of God's wrath. And the flood comes down and it hits him instead of you. He takes the brunt of the punishment. He takes all the wrath of God that you deserved. He takes it in your place. What mercy. What mercy. Jesus Christ, our champion, our suffering servant, the propitiation for our sins. God is rich in mercy. What a wonderful, merciful Savior. See, if you're not in Christ here today and you're hearing this, you're not a Christian. That is that you don't know and have a personal relationship with Jesus. You don't love Jesus, markers of a true believer. You are outside of Christ. Uh, Verses 1 through 3 is not a past tense for you. It's a present tense. You are currently dead in your trespasses and sins, walking, following the course of this world, sons and daughters of disobedience, children of wrath, what you need desperately is God's mercy. Cry out for mercy today. Like the tax collector who approaches the temple and he beats his chest, he can't even look up. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Like Bartimaeus, the blind man who cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. We need mercy. You need mercy today. Cry out to God because he's overflowing with it. And listen, for the believer, any day that you are covered in Christ, withheld from the wrath of God that you deserve, is a day that you should be thankful. Amen? Amen. Amen. Why? Mercy. Why did God make us alive? Mercy. Why did God make us alive? Love. The second answer to the question why is love. God rich, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Great love. Polain agapein. Great love. It's agape love. And you know agape love. We've talked about this before. Agape love is selfless love. It's sacrificial love. It's unconditional love. It's the highest form in the Greek language. It's God's love. God's love is unconditional. The world's love is conditional. It always is. There's always a condition, some need, some reason that is met in order for love to occur. To occur. There are emotional conditions. 
For example, I'll love him or her only when I feel like it. Or if that person makes me feel a kind of way, then I will love. It's an emotional condition. There are circumstantial conditions. Well, I've been stuck with these parents, or I've you know, been stuck with that uncle, or stuck with that grandpa, and because he's blood, well, I have to love him or her. Or, you know, I'll love someone when the timing is right, or when the right person comes around. Circumstantial love, love based on the condition of circumstance. And then you have self-serving conditions, and this is the primary condition of the world's love. I will love you if there's some benefit for me in return. I'll love you if you love me the way that I want to be loved. Or I'll love you because, well, you make me feel comfortable, secure, and safe. Or I'll love you because you're the idol that currently feeds my soul. Or I'll love you because I depend on you. Again, the world only loves when the other person brings some sort of benefit to the table. When the pros outweigh the cons, then I will love. Back in my single days, not super proud of this, me and my friends had a pros and cons list uh, related to girls that we were interested in. So if, and this happened, if my buddy liked a girl, we would make a pros and cons list for him. With a real whiteboard and expo markers, the whole shebang. And, and we wrote it up, and we had it up there. We had the girl's name up top, and we had the pros and cons. This is awful. I don't recommend this. But this just is a prime example of conditional love, right? And so we would write the pros for, you know, why this buddy should maybe go out with a girl. Of course, the first pro, it had to be there, is that she loves the Lord. Okay, pro, loves Jesus. And then, you know, it just digresses after that. And if the pros outweighed the cons, then it was a good decision, right? Conditional love. Conditional love. If you spend time talking with people about the things that they love or the people they love, you could pretty quickly identify why or what motivates their love, the conditions that they have for love. But what I'm getting at is when you sit down with God, and you look at his great love for you, and you look at the pros and cons, the benefits for him loving you, let me tell you, there is nothing on the pros side, and there is an infinite list of cons. It is absolutely, inexplicably unconditional. There's no reason or condition for the love of God for you outside of himself. He doesn't need us. He doesn't depend upon us. We are of no benefit to him. There's no worthy service or sacrifice we can make apart from his help. In fact, based on verses 1 through 3, we give him every reason, every con not to love us but God. Being rich in mercy and because of his great love for us, 
made us alive. Notice who initiated love. In other words, who loved who first? A couple verses you need to see here. We love because what? He first loved us. 1 John 4.10, and this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Why, Morgan? Why are you making such an emphasis on the fact that God loved us first? We love him now. Doesn't, you know, it doesn't really matter who loved who first. Yes, it does. You know why? Lest you adulterate God's love by making it conditional. In other words, some will say, well, God loved me because, well, I was good enough to be loved. Or God loved me because, well, I started searching out for him first. And then he found me. But God loved me because I know I loved him first. Or God loved me because he knew that I would somehow wake myself up and choose him first. No, God loved you because he loved you. And for some reason, that pill is the toughest pill for people to swallow about Christianity. An unconditional love. You know why? They have been so conditioned, no pun intended, by conditional love. They can't fathom a God that would unconditionally love them. That would love them not not because of who they are, but despite of who they are. He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. This is inexplicable love, and this is great love. This is separate love, much different and separate from the world. This is our God. Oh, it is amazing love. There's so much we could say about the love of God that makes it so different than the love of this world. But you need to know this today, is that God's mercy and God's love thrusted him into action to save you. And he initiated. He did it first. What an amazing God. Unobligated, unconditional, unadulterated mercy and love. Why? Mercy and love. When? When did this happen? This is a briefer point. It's very self-explanatory. When? While we were dead. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now, this is the nail in the coffin to any idea that we can save ourselves or to any idea that we can somehow awaken ourselves to believe or any idea that we could choose God before he chooses us, God made us alive when we were still dead. The dead can't respond. Remember, miracle max does not uh, determine our theology. Miracle Max says, well, you could be mostly dead and able to respond, or totally dead, and we got to look through your pockets for loose change. No, the, the Bible only has one definition for dead. Dead is dead. Separate. Unable. 
to respond. See, we needed some kind of power outside of ourselves, hint, hint, maybe some kind of resurrection power, maybe similar to the power that we talked about in Ephesians 1, verses 19 to 23. There's a connection here. We needed that power to quicken us to life, to wake us up. The scriptures are replete with this idea. Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Colossians 2.13, the parallel passage to Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. That, that verb there in Colossians 2.13, were dead, the same uh, form and tense as the verb here in Ephesians 2.5, we were dead. It's a present, active participle. In other words, uh, ongoingly, perpetually, continually dead. In other words, if God had not acted, you would still be dead. God does the work. God makes us alive. And when did he do it? When we were dead. The last question, how? How? Why mercy and love? When? When we were dead. How? Through Jesus Christ. Look back at Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. He, I'm inserting the subject there, God, he made us alive together with who? Christ. Christian, can I give you the cheat cheat to uh, understanding your faith, understanding salvation? Here's the cheat. Jesus is always the answer to the how. Jesus Christ is the answer to the how question. How did this salvation come to us? How was it bestowed upon us? Through Jesus Christ. He is the agent through which God saved us. Let's go through it. How did God show us mercy? How? By staking the cross of Jesus Christ between us and his wrath. How did God show us love? John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus. How did God make us who were dead alive? John 14, 19. This is so critical to understand. Jesus said this to his disciples. John 14, 19. Because I live, you also will live. That's a profound statement. Jesus says, because I live, you also, my disciples will live. There is an incredible connection, a union between you, believer, and Jesus Christ. And it is remarkable to see. And so many of us forget it. 
we say, yes, Jesus loves me and saved me, and then go on living our lives as if we're disconnected from him somehow. The believer, by definition, is united to Jesus Christ. I want you to see this. We are raised with Christ. I want you to see this described in Romans chapter 6. Please turn to that text with me, Romans 6. It perfectly illustrates this point. Our union to Christ. Because he lives, we also live. Romans 6, verses 3 to 5. And this is a great passage, by the way, because Paul uses the symbol of baptism to describe how we are united to Christ, and we are going to have a baptism later in the service. And so we'll see the symbol, the sign of our salvation in the ordinance of baptism. It's, it's going to be great. But look at here, uh, Romans 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him. There's that, with him. With him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Here it is. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. Christian, you are united to Jesus Christ. And it is because he died and rose again that you, Christian, can be once dead and now alive. That's amazing. There is such close relationship between you and Christ. You are united. You are with him in this reality. Colossians 1.18 says he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That is that he was the first to raise from the dead so that you, Christian, can be raised to new life in Jesus Christ. That is why the resurrection is so important. That's why the gospel doesn't just end with, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He rose. And without the resurrection, you are not alive. That's amazing. Jesus Christ, our champion. We are together with Christ, made alive with him. This is the divine reversal. The same power that worked in Christ is the same power that Paul is describing here working in your life. And it's not by your own efforts. It's by grace you have been saved. That phrase there is a parenthesis, kind of, in the original manuscripts, and it's repeated in verse... Sorry, it took me a little while to find it. So we're going to exposit that a little bit more in depth when we get to verse 8. 
a little bit later. But it is all, you have to know, it's all God's grace. It's nothing, nothing that you could do to earn a salvation like this. But I want to talk about the implications of a new life. So we have been made alive. Morgan, you made that very clear. We are with Christ because of Christ. We are made alive. We are united with him. What, what are the implications of that? How does that apply to your life? Well, if you're still in Romans 6, stay in there. Uh, if you're not, go back to Romans 6 because Paul describes the implications in this passage. What are the implications of you being made alive? Look at verse or chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Remember, you're no longer dead. You're alive. Skip to verse 6. Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self, the old condition, the old cosmos, the old conduct, the old conclusion was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Incredible implications for your life, isn't it? You know, some people talk about the carnal Christian. And what they're talking about is a Christian who has been given over to carnality. In a sense, it's, a, it's this believer, so to speak, that can be enslaved still to sin. Let me ask you, is that possible? based on what Romans 6 just told us? No. We're no longer enslaved to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over us. We are set free. We are new creations. We're alive. We're no longer dead. Now what happens is that us Christians, sometimes we forget this reality. We forget that we're alive and we go back and we dive into the old world and give over to our sinful passions and desires go back to camaraderie with other sons of disobedience. We go back to tasting God's wrath and discipline. But that should not be so. We are new creatures, new creations, alive, no longer dead. And so Paul exhorts us, don't go back. 
to acting like you're dead. Don't go back to those sinful desires and pleasures. Don't go back to acting like a son of, or a daughter of disobedience. Don't go back to tasting, living under the wrath. No, no, no. You are new. You are alive. Christian, I want to encourage you this week. Christian, do not go back to carnality. Do not identify as a carnal Christian. There's no such thing. You are alive. Repent from your sin and act like you're alive. Follow Jesus Christ. You are no longer a slave to sin. You don't have to go back to your sin. Sin is not inevitable in the sense that Oh, it's just going to come and I'm under dominion of it. It's, I'm enslaved to it. No, 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 no. You are alive. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You can say no to sin. You can say no to sin. It has no dominion over you. There are incredible implications to being raised from the dead in Jesus Christ. Never forget the realities of the gospel. But God, two beautiful words after so desperate a condition. He made us alive. All Him, all His power, all His grace. Why? Mercy and love. When? When we were dead. How? Through Jesus Christ. And this changes everything. Go out this week and live like you are really alive in Christ. Don't go back to carnality. And if you are here today and you don't have Christ, you are a slave to sin. And you need Jesus for mercy. You're searching for love and you're not going to find love like God's in the world. Look to God for true love. And look to God for eternal life in the work of the person in the work of Jesus Christ. Turn to him today. Today is the day of salvation. Surrender your life to Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, these are just such incredible truths. Lord, I just want to come to you thankful. Just thank you for saving me. God, you had every reason to leave me to my own vices, to leave me enslaved to my own sins, to leave me sprinting toward hell. But you made me alive, rich in mercy, incredible and inexplicable love toward me, love that I did not deserve. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus who took the wrath that I deserve, took it in my place, and rose again from the dead, declaring victory over sin and death. The true champion that in him I can be, Lord, set free from sin and alive in living for you, Lord. 
and following you. What, a, what an incredible, incredible truth, God. And I, I pray for every person here, for the believer first, that you would encourage them with these truths, that you would discourage them from going back to living like they were dead or giving into those sinful passions, Lord, but you would reassure them of that new life that they have in you, and that they would live differently, that they would no longer succumb to the sin, but they would surrender and be led by the Spirit in this new life that you've given them. God, I pray for the unbeliever here that you would awaken their hearts. You would open their eyes to understand the beauty and the glories of the gospel, that they would surrender their life to Jesus Christ today. God, I pray that through your word you would work in hearts here even today, that they would believe in Jesus and be saved from their bondage to sin. God, we give you the glory for the incredible work and the fruit that your word will produce in these lives. In Jesus' name, amen.